Welcome to the Beef Watch Podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension Beef Educator. For today's Beef Watch Podcast, we're going to be discussing an article from the 2021 Iowa State University Animal Industry Report. The title of the article we're going to discuss today, Swath Grazing Ford Sorghum and Pearl Millet, Observations Regarding Quality and Utilization as Winter Feed. To discuss this, I'm joined today by the co-authors, Dr. Garland Dalkey, as well as David Breen, who are both on staff at Iowa State University. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, glad to be here. No, no, thank you for inviting us. Before we dive into today's topic, just take a moment here. This is the first time we've had you on the Beef Watch podcast. Tell us a little more about yourself, your background, and your current roles there at Iowa State. Okay, well, I'm Garland Dalkey, as mentioned, and I've been here at Iowa State for 20 years. And I'm originally from Wisconsin. I guess I did my graduate work at Iowa State, but I originally did all my other stuff in Wisconsin. And um, I I worked and lived there for all my life. And then after graduate school, too, for six years. And then I ended up coming back to Iowa State, mainly to support a bunch of software that I had developed while in graduate school. But then in the process, I kind of got into some other things as well. And the swath grazing thing is one of the latest things that have gotten into with David. My training has been in ruminant nutrition and agronomy. And um, so I guess that's probably enough for today. Yeah, well, my name's David Brini. I've been in my current role here at Iowa State since 2013, our beef farms manager and beef teaching farm manager. Graduated from Iowa State with an ag studies degree, which would be our old farm op program. Uh, originally intended to go back home and farm. Grew up in central Iowa on a diversified row crop, cow-calf operation, fed a little bit of cattle. Back in the days, we did have some hogs too. Came to Iowa State, always had an interest and passion in beef cattle. Uh, That's really kind of what's always made me tick. Been in this role since 2013. I like to think of myself as a continual learner, always like trying new things trying to improve things. And that's kind of where the swath grazing thing happened. I really saw a need to figure out a way to feed these cows more economically, Uh, not just at Iowa State, but as I'm talking to private producers across the state as well. And I also own and operate my own cow herd. So I do this stuff every day for a profession and uh, then go home at night and do it on my own too. So uh, that's kind of what fuels me. When I came across your article, it piqued my interest, uh, this topic of swath grazing or windrow grazing, as it's sometimes called, uh, something I've had an interest in for a long time. I have to admit, I had the paradigm that once you got east of the 100th meridian, the application of using swath grazing probably had just limited application. But your research challenged me on that and uh, caused me to rethink a little bit uh, some strategy in terms of utilizing this as a tool. So just walk through with us. How did you come up with this idea? And then as you've looked at how this might be implemented, kind of walk through with us some of the strategies you applied as you thought about using this now with your teaching herd there at Iowa State. Sure. So I guess I'll go first. This story's kind of odd because um, actually when we get down into it, we actually had two people here at Iowa State thinking of the same thing. Uh, And then Garland and I kind of figured out uh, about a year into this that we were both kind of on this same rabbit trail. So how I originally got started on this was it was a wet fall. We were just smoking through feed, sitting in a, you know, $90,000 loader tractor and fighting mud and net wrap. And I started doing some rough math in a loader tractor that day. And 
Uh, you don't have to be very smart or very sharp to figure out that that math starts stacking up in a hurry. So it really kind of became what method are we going to use to get this winter feed cost down to make this to continue to be more profitable in a cow-calf operation. And swath grazing was one of the things that I looked at. And Aaron, kind of similar to what you had mentioned, there's a bit of a paradigm that we tend to be a little bit too wet here. And sitting in a wet fall, it never rang more true than that. Fast forward, started working with some warm season annuals of sorghum sedans and pearl millets. And uh, we actually kind of discovered kind of a roundabout way. I figured out that if we leave that forage stand and let mother nature frost it and kill it, let it stand, um, it's pretty tough for something to mold when the entire state's a giant freezer. So our take is to wait until we're going to get too much snow before we can't swath that feed. And then we're going to lay that feed down on good, hard, frozen ground, or when we know we're going into a really cold time of year where our odds of getting wet are less. Walk through with us, David, just as you think about a, a calendar year for where you're at, what does that look like in terms of timing? Yeah, so anybody who's familiar with this is probably filling in the blanks saying, well, you've got some extra growing season running around in there, and we do. So the ground that we actually do this on, we'll have an early crop. Historically, we've done oats. Uh, this year, we're going to run peas. We're going to get that in pretty early. And then we're going to take, uh, if it's oats, we're going to cut that pre-boot is a really high quality dry hay. And then no-till drill sorghum or pearl millet in behind it. And this is really where a little bit of the art comes in. And when I'm finished here, I'll let Garland touch on it from some of our data. You really got to sit down and analyze. We're going to be drilling this the end of May, first part of June, this pearl millet or forage sorghum sedan cross on what kind of a year you're going to have where you're sitting subsoil moisture wise. If we have adequate rainfall, we will do what we refer to now as a two cutting system. If we don't have adequate rainfall or we're questioning if we're going to have good moisture, this is in the hottest, driest part of the time of the year where we're at, we're going to let it go to full maturity to take the extra tons, but we are going to sacrifice some quality. And through some of our stuff that we've done over the last four years, and actually in the last year, we've learned that we can really have some impacts on those cows through that. And I'll let Garland touch a little bit on what we've learned from utilization and forage quality with those two different cutting systems. So I say with the two cutting system, we can actually make some very good forage. And um, the, the year that you're referring to in this article that we published, that was a two cutting year. We uh, got the, the sorghum sedan millet in early after the oats was off. And that was probably about the last week of May, early June. That grew through July, then it was cut, harvested for hay, it was dry enough that we could, you know, make dry hay with it, and then it regrew. And we only got an inch of rain, but the, the regrowth was very high quality. I we took some samples when it first froze off in mid October. It was running nineteen percent protein. Energy was very good, you know, it was about 0.56 net energy for maintenance at that time. We didn't have a lot of tons because it was a drought year. After we cut that that cutting in late July, we got one inch of rain, and that's all that crop got till it froze. And so it was kind of running on steam a little bit, and that was good. And that's kind of why we've been using a summer annual like pearl millet 
or sorghum, sedan grass, that kind of stuff. Because it once it's established, it does take the heat and the dry a little better than something like triticale. So that that's kind of what that's been about. Now, this last year, we've been doing this now for four years. It got a little too dry. The crop got planted a little later. We had a little wet spring. Everything got delayed. Then it got dry. So we planted it in what was the first week of July this last year, for instance. And that crop, we just left it go the entire time. Last year, the same thing happened. It got a little late. So then we had just a one-cutting system. So in those situations, the like sorghum sedan grass, the, the millet is fully mature. It's got a seed head. The quality is about half is what it would have been if we did a two-cutting system, literally half. And um, But we, we left it just to get enough tons to make sure we had enough grazing so the, the you know keeping that crop in a vegetative state is really kind of critical if you want high quality forage and um they say the other thing is if you need tons well then you kind of got to kind of hedge your bets and see what what the weather is going to do and we've done it both ways cows survived both times they do lose a little condition when you let it go to maturity but you do get a lot of pheasants so if you like hunting that works pretty good too so it's not a complete loss so yeah, that's that's really where the quality goes initially. It, it's it's very good. The pearl millet seems to hold its quality a lot better. So as we, as the article you're referring to, Aaron, that one, you know, we tested that all the way through the grazing season. Every month we take samples out there, and um, where the sorghum sedan grass starts out at 19% crude protein, for instance, in October when it freezes, by the time we start grazing it in December it's about nine to 10%. It loses about that much. The pearl millet, on the other hand, it really retained that that quality very well. I think it started out about 14%. We started grazing it, it was about 13%. And that's just looking at protein. The other um, nutrients follow a similar pattern. So there's some more soluble things in that sorghum sedan grass, but um, it's just kind of the nature. And I think if you look at the Canadian data, and maybe some of your data out west, you probably see the same thing. Different species retain quality better. And I say probably within a species, you'll probably see some differences as well. So that's that's kind of how that's gone. We do notice, though, that once we get to March, that quality really drops off bad. And the cows are not too interested anymore. They pick through it. But the utilization goes way down. So initially, we chased the cows in there. The cows go for it and they clean it up right down to the ground as long as it's not frozen too bad. But then they say as we get into closer and closer to spring, we start getting a lot of thaws and rains. For instance, we had two inches of rain here two weeks ago and that really knocked off the quality and the cows, they started to lose interest in it. They still pick through it, but it's not like it was in December or January. So walk through with us. You mentioned forage sorghum, sorghum sedan pearl millets. You've been at this four or five years now. Are you looking at different types of summer annuals as a way to, or selecting certain varieties that try to fit this system? Well, I think that's kind of our next step. We, we've kind of got a little a base with the, with the pearl millet sorghum sedan. And a lot of what we're doing, we're using this on high value Iowa crop ground, you know, $300 an acre ground. And so we've been looking for Kind of a sure bet in terms of high yields to kind of justify taking corn bean ground out of production for a year to go with the sorghum sedan. So we've been using just big quantity, you know, big yield type of stuff. Now going forward, you know, I, 
up north where I'm from, you know, triticale, there's interest in that. The quality is a lot better. The Canadians, they seem to like using that as well. And, and I can understand why, because the cows like it. There's, there, you can get big tonnage, but our rainfall is a little bit iffy here. Sometimes it gets pretty dry in mid to late summer. And I'm not sure quite if we could count on a yield that would be adequate to justify putting it in high value ground. But I say going forward this next year, yesterday, Dave and I were talking about it as well. And I think what we might be looking at is looking at some like sorghum sedan grasses, maybe pearl mullets that don't put on a seed head, maybe a hybrid or a photosensitive one that delays that, see if we can get some better quality going into winter. The other thing is, you know, there are some legumes out there. They're some kind of exotic, but there are some that are pretty aggressive and grow. They maybe could keep up with sorghum sedan grass. That's one thing about that crop. It gets so thick and so heavy, it usually smothers everything else out, which if you've got a weed problem, that's nice, takes care of it. But if you want some, like a legume to grow with it, it's a little touchy. So we've been looking and thinking about what can we try to stick in with this stuff. And, you know, crimson clover, they talk about that down south quite a bit. I've seen it growing. It looks like it could be a pretty aggressive crop. It might keep up with pearl millet pretty well. Sorghum sedan, I'm not sure. You know, there's some stuff, some crazy wild stuff like guar from India. That grows about seven feet tall. That's a legume. That's pretty good quality, and they do grow it in Texas for gum production. I'm not sure how it would hold up um, in a situation like we're doing or if all the leaves would fall off in the when it gets cold. But we are looking, you know, if there's something that can keep up with the, the high tonnage of like the sorghum sedan and pearl millet that we have been using. So it is on our radar. Yeah. And Aaron, I guess I'll just throw this in there. You know, we kind of, I guess early on, we've been doing this for four years. Every year is definitely a new year to learn and observe on this project. As Garland said, we really kind of proved the principle that we can make it work. So really our focus now is how do we hone in on that quality how do we really take this risk out that, you know, we as a teaching land-grant institution have always taken on that risk? How do we make this be a sure bet of a crop for a producer? Because what one of the beautiful parts about this is that uh, we can use those cows to feed themselves all winter. We're not hauling manure. As all of our listeners are very well aware of those benefits of grazing cows, what it does for a bottom line. But in this high production farm ground, what we're able to do is get two and if not three crops in a year off that ground and when you're doing the math on your enterprise budgeting suddenly you're sitting there looking at that and we can actually make more money with cows on high production crop ground with a fraction of the amount of capital invested and when we're looking down the barrel of some you know eight almost nine percent interest rates on operating money we're really trying to make this uh, work into a corn and soybean rotation to be a good economical option for feeding cows throughout the winter in the upper Midwest. So one of the other things that came to mind for me is if you've got a cow operation where you are, I'm guessing you've got some dry lot, at least for part of the year. So the opportunity to spread manure uh, by June, early July time period, maybe in between your oat crop and your sorghum sedan, that might be a fit as well. Do you utilize that or how do you see that working? So we have dry spread some of our manure that you're speaking of out of the dry lots in there. Um, It's kind of a catch-22 though, Aaron. One of the side effects of this is we don't have as much manure to spread anymore because we don't have all these cows standing in a dry lot half the year 
or 200 days out of the year, whatever our annual feeding period was, we can apply, you know, some of our feed yard manure and things like that. It gives us a phenomenal window to get that done. Where we're located at the university, we also have a hog unit nearby. Um, so we have been in emergency relief um, for applying some hog manure. So there are some options as you have honed in on to really take advantage of some nutrient sources that uh, in a regular row crop operation probably wouldn't be available to you that time of year uh, when we're just kind of the only outlet uh, that can take it. Let's talk about logistics because I think that really piqued my interest when I looked at this paper and what you do when you look at uh, how you harvest this crop and put it in the windrow. You mentioned you leave it till it freezes. Then walk through with us what happens after it freezes. How are you actually getting that feed to the cow or should I say bringing the cows to the feed? Uh, just kind of take us from that hard freeze till basically first of March when it gets too wet to be out there. What does that look like? Yeah, so uh, this is really, uh, honestly, everything else we've talked about is the fairly easy part of the learning curve on this. What we're about ready to go into, I guess, is where we really got an education. I guess I'll start with uh, getting the cows out there. Obviously, all of our listeners are probably thinking the ground's froze. We fence these. Uh, we will strip graze them, essentially, and we are going to graze perpendicular to the swath with the wire. Um we're going to give those cows about two days worth of feed at a time. We've gone upwards to three and even four days. I really don't want to stretch it out any more than that, just because I think we can really start to hurt our utilization and the cows may start bedding down in too much feed. We used a product and I'm not plugging them. Uh, they just happen to be the only ones that make such a thing unless somebody else can find something else. Uh, we use Gallagher tumble wheels to move that wire. And, um, and flat ground, I'll spread those wheels out about every 100 foot. We use a really good braided poly wire product, uh, not like the horse rope, but one of these new woven products with just a single wire electric fence uh, to move them. One undergraduate student on 700 foot of fence should be able to move that wire in under two minutes. And we've got the video of them doing it. So that's fairly good. We're going to graze away from our water source. There's obviously uh, nothing regrowing, so we don't need to be concerned about back fencing. So we'll have one really good frost-free water point. We'll graze away from that. So that's kind of your cow logistics. So I'll touch briefly on the cropping. So after the crop is frosted and we get a good hard killing freeze, my records would indicate here over the last four years, that's going to be somewhere between about October 10th to about October 20th in Ames, Iowa, is where we've had that good hard killing frost. We're gonna leave it alone. And until I see in the weather forecast that we're gonna have too much snow that we won't be able to pull a mower through, we're gonna let it stand. I have swathed this crop down in an inch of powder before snow and it works. The one thing that I will caution your listeners on, and we learned it the hard way, John Deere, Vermeer, New Holland, none of them ever intended hay mowers to be pulled out of the shed and fired up at 15 below zero. Because the first year we did it, we didn't think about 85, 140 gear lube in the cutter bars, and we smoked the slip clutches instantly. So you need to get those mowers in a heated shop or use a tractor with a soft start PTO and let them sit there on the yard and warm up 
before you go out there because um, we just use our regular disc mower, a hydro swing with conditioning rolls when we mow it down and uh, it works really good. I want to see that done. I've got a couple of producers that did it shortly after Thanksgiving. I like to push it a little bit more. Um, I think Garland, you might check the stuff there, but I think the latest I've done it is New Year's Day. So uh, New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve was the latest we did it. So. Yep, New Year's Eve. So we're going to really push the envelope because I know that feed quality. I know we're not having it mold and rot in the swath if it's still standing upright. So we're going to let it stand as long as we can and then lay it down. And in Iowa, it presents a really nice window because uh, we don't need that feed right quite then because historically our cows are predominantly going to be on corn stalks during that window. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So really, you've got that window of corn stalks. And then, you know, when the corn stalks gets deteriorated, you still got this standing crop that you've tried to extend as long as you can to put in a windrow. I guess just kind of help us put the pieces of the puzzle together. As we think about your cow herd, I assume they're coming off like a smooth brome type pasture in October and then going to corn stalks and then going to this uh, this windrowed forage. Is that correct? Or I guess tell us what that looks like for you. Yeah, so we'll come off summer pasture. Our summer pasture here is going to be uh, a heavy brome mix, uh, heavy fescue mix also. I'm not scared of fescue. We utilize it quite a bit here. We will then go to corn stalks. When I graze corn stalks, Aaron, one of the nice parts about that I know I've got more feed coming up is we really only get the good out of our corn stalks and then we pull the cows off them. I let those cows out there pretty much until they have to really start working that stock field. And then we're going to pull them. We will go to swaths or we may kick those cows out on some stockpiled fescue if we have it available. If we get into deep snow, I've had it before where we'll go on swaths. And then if the opportunity presents itself later, um, we may take those cows when they're finished with a field of swaths and run them across some stockpiled fescue really quick just because we have the opportunity to utilize the feed and then go back into the swaths as our, you know, bad weather winter feed stuff. So talk through with us, Garland, just what do we see in terms of quality change from when that crop freezes? And again, I know it varies by year, whether this was a two, two harvest system or one harvest, but kind of give us a picture of what's happening in terms of energy and protein to that crop as we move from that time of hard freeze till we get to this time of year, you know, end of February, 1st of March, when you really need to pull off. So I, I guess every year is a little different because really what that, when you cut that forage, we, you know, even like in October, if, if things don't, if it just gets cold and dry, that quality really just holds on there. I guess it's like putting vegetables from the garden in the freezer. It just kind of stays there. Now, the, the problem is when you get the, the thaws and the rains and then the freeze and the thaw and the rain, that routine, then that's when things can leach out. And it gets to be a little bit similar to what you have in the summertime. If you cut hay and you get a, an inch of rain on top of that cut hay, things start to leach out. So that's really kind of what goes on. Only in the wintertime, it's a little more slow motion. We don't have all the bacteria action, but it does stuff does leach out. Out west, it works better. You don't get quite as much precipitation and all that. But what you can expect, though, is let's say sorghum sedan, I say on a two-cutting system, when it first freezes off, that regrowth will probably be around 19% protein. Energy will be about 
0.054 megacalories per pound of dry matter for net energy for maintenance. And then as we just let that crop stand there, in December when we would cut it, you'll see the dry matter has gone way down. It'll be about 80% dry matter a lot of times if it's been a fairly dry fall and we haven't had a lot of rain that year. At that time, you'll see the, the protein will probably be about half. So if it was 19%, it'll be about around 10% protein. The energy won't drop quite so bad. It may be instead of like half um, 0.56 megacalories, maybe 0.52 megacalories. It's it's slipping a little, not too bad. And I say that that's kind of where it'll be in December. And that's what's the sorghum sedan. Millet will be a little bit less initially, but it'll retain about 80-90% of that at, by December. So it, it holds on to it better, where it's about quite a bit less with the sorghum sedan. So we go into January, and we'll cut that stuff in December. A month later, if we come back and test it, you'll see that from what that December value to the January value there, a lot of it depends on how much freeze and thaw and rain we may get. If it doesn't do anything, it'll still keep that value right there, spot on. If it does get some thawing and rain, you probably will see maybe a 30% decrease in the in the goodies, you know, the, the net energy and all that. The non-fiber carbohydrate really is where you see most of it going because that's that sugar, starch, and those derivatives that, that leach so easily. In February, go another month. They're weather dependent too. If you got a nice cold January, it'll probably stay about the same. If you start getting some thaws, some January thaws, you'll probably reduce it another 30% from where it was in January. And then when you get to the end of February, we generally start getting some rain, some pretty good thaw-outs. Like I say, last week or two weeks ago, we had two inches of rain. And there, the stuff kind of goes to nothing. It's just like straw at that point. And they say the cows really lose interest. So that, that's kind of what you can expect. And they say if you have a, a dry type of winter or a real cold winter, you know, your quality will hold on very well. It's just that when you get the warm-ups and if you have a lot of snow cover at it, you, that's where you'll get some leaching out. And they say it's just like summertime when you make try to make dry hay, but um, it's a little bit more slow motion. It doesn't go down quite so fast. I guess, David, talk about the logistics of feeding the cows. You already mentioned you're using a tumble wheel. A lot of people are thinking a one-wire electric fence. Are these cows challenging that? Are they staying in? How do you handle storms? Uh, you know, how much are they wasting? Do you have a mess left in the field in the spring then when you have to go back and and plan to plant your spring crop? What's that look like? Yeah, so those are all very legitimate questions. So I'll touch on the wire or the fence first, and then we'll move right into kind of the field, what the field looks like when we're done with it. So the poly wire and the single electric fence wire, if you're a cow in the middle of winter, uh, there's not a whole lot of incentive to test the fence because you're in where all the feed is at. You might have a cow once in a while get over that division wire in four years, I've never once had a cow breach a perimeter. And we've got some spots for our perimeter fence um, is some World War II era fence that there is, it's more of a visual barrier than an actual fence with just a single hot wire offset. Those cows do not challenge that at all. Um, we've actually ran into instances where a student hooks the poly wire up incorrectly and you go out there in two days and you're like wow that fence has been dead for two days and the cows haven't challenged it at all so if your cows are broke to an electric fence 
it really works very good. It doesn't take a lot to keep them in. The one thing I will tell you about electric fence in the winter, when the ground is froze, you need to have a good grounding field on that fencer because it is very challenging to shock one of these cows in that type of weather conditions because they're just so well insulated and you can't, it's really tough to get a good ground on the cow. So have good ground on your fencer, but it doesn't take a whole lot. We don't have cows that challenge it much. To touch on the field conditions, the document that you're referring to, when Garland went back and we were testing all that for utilization, high 60s to very low 70s is kind of where our utilization is running in this historically when we're doing this. Uh, so really good, a lot better than a stockpile grazing situation. Afterwards, the first year I did harrow the field, I was pretty concerned about residue. And for the last three years, we no-till drill the oats right back in it with no field prep at all. Uh, manure distribution is really good in the field. Well, the remnants of the swaths actually deteriorate very rapidly in the spring to the point where it's really tough to even make them out anymore when you go in there to no-till drill. This year, we're going to no-till drill some peas in where we swath grazed, and there will be zero field prep to it. There's not a lot of pugging. We have started looking at the compaction on this and we have not found any evidence that keeping those cows on there is causing much compaction at all we used a dickie john compaction probe garland and i did uh this fall to kind of look at it the, really the only compaction that we found was kind of the sins of some of our prior farming practices to be quite honest we measured in a couple of locations, different management. Um, we really didn't find a lot of compaction evidence from those cows. If anything, we found some old feeding sites with some very uh, upper level compaction that only went down about maybe five inches, but it's, it's great to no-till drill into in the spring. Uh, I really like that we can pull the cows out of this. We don't have a lot of field prep. We're not worrying about hauling a bunch of manure. We're not worried about bedding those cows. Uh, you asked about storms, how we handle that. We do give those cows the option to go behind a windbreak. Most of the time in storms, our cows may stand behind the windbreak for a brief period. But if you drive by and we're very publicly visible where our cows are at, those cows are going to be out there grazing in about all types of weather. It's pretty neat to see. I assume that these are March, April calving cows. When, when do you start calving these cows? Yes. So that is a very good thing to touch on. We're going to be calving in March and April. This system that we're visiting about here today is best suited towards a March, April, even maybe if you're a little bit later than that calving operation, because you really need to think about where that cow's at in her plane of nutrition and match that feed stuff that we have. So we've talked about the difference and Sorghum's going to drop that quality a little bit faster than uh, the millet will. We feed test any field that we're going to swath graze, and that dictates when those cows are going to go in there. And our goal is to walk those cows into a higher plane of nutrition as we get closer to calving time with our swath crops. I think you guys have done a great job giving us a picture of how you got to where you are today. As you look forward, as you think about where might we take this, we've talked a little bit about looking at some different forage options, thinking about varieties for selection. What are some things you're thinking about trying or implementing as you move forward with this idea? 
Well, I'll let Garland touch on that, and then I guess I'll give my two cents here at the end. Well, like I said, I mentioned, you know, we're, we're looking at forage quality because, you know, at first we were just seeing how it worked, you know, and if it worked good, we'll let everybody know. If it doesn't work good, we'll just move on. But so it has been working good in terms of managing cows, labor, and all that. And I said, we can get back in the field. It's really quick and easy that way. Going forward, I think what we really need to do is a couple of things. You know, we've been touting this system as something you can use in a row crop deal, like using sorghum sedan that works very nice for breaking up a corn rootworm cycle. It breaks up the cyst nematode cycle as well. So it'd probably be good to work this into a regular rotation where there is problems and see what kind of what works out and how does this work out. Everybody's talking soil health and all these things, sustainability. Well, this may be a nice tool for that package. The other thing is, so this past year, we did a lot of stuff with the cow herself. You know, how does she hold her condition? Pay attention to how she calves out. Do we have any health issues with the calves? And um, we all along, it seemed like it's been working good. We just didn't get good measures. This last year now we have we ultrasound these cows going into the swaths, coming off the swaths, and we can see that depending on who's managing and how things have set themselves up for the year, the cows can turn out a little different. And um, we also notice that there's some genetics issues going on with these cows. Uh, this, just this past week, we took a bunch of cows off our McNay trial, the McNay uh, Research Farm, which is in southeast Iowa. They're on the same swath grazing routine. We had cows that were 2008 models all the way to 2017 models. And um, we can see that different years, different cows from, I suppose, a lot of sire groups there, there are some differences. And so it's going to be kind of neat to start hashing that out. Same thing with the campus herd. We got to finish getting through all the numbers, but it, there's some differences there in genetics that make a big deal. So I say we got the, the varieties, we got the, the complete systems look in terms of working this into a crop rotation. We got the cow um, health issue going on. So we got three big areas to look at. One thing that I think really helps, and I noticed this early on, you know, the cows that are on swaths versus those we had in a dry lot, and even a bigger dry lot, the, the swath cows that come in clean and fuzzy, their hair coat is really clean. So when they calve, those calves, they get up, they want to nurse. When they try to nurse on an udder that's clean, they don't get a mouthful of manure. And I think that's going to help our scour issue go away, it seems to have. And um, while those cows that were held in a dry lot, they generally have a mud score of one to two. It's not a lot, but there's there's mud there. And I say you really kind of set yourself up for some health issues in, in those situations. And maybe out west, it's not quite as bad. But as you go east to the Missouri River and keep going east from there, muddy cows in the winter are a big problem. And calf scours follow. So that's that's a big thing. I think we'll keep an eye on that. I think another thing that we see is these cows that are on swaths get a lot more exercise. So east of the Missouri River, that's a big deal because when they're dry lotted, they don't get as much exercise and they seem to have more calving problems. You got to assist more cows. Now, for the cows that David's managing on campus, I think if he has one calf pull a year, that's about it now with these swath cows. And he may not even have that many. And um, it does seem to help. And I say it, it's a bigger deal as you go east of the Missouri River because people pen up their cows a lot more and 
it's uh, it gets to be kind of a full-time job just to watch cows make sure they calve okay and really that's that's a job that we shouldn't have to spend that much time doing david may have some more to comment on that but that's kind of my observation so far yeah no i think garland you really touched on kind of where we need to move through in this and uh you know we're, we're a research place so we're kind of looking at the good and the bad I'm very interested in the genetic differences in these cows. This is the first time we've had a good measure on it. There's a very glaring genetic difference in some of these cows' ability out there. I mean, we've done this now for four years. The cows have done an adequate job of holding condition. I can't say as we've had a, a, a bona fide wreck in this. As anybody knows, you got to watch your body condition in the winter. This is no exception to that rule. I really think moving forward, as Garland talked on, we need to look at how this drops into a corn and soybean rotation. I think there's a lot of possibilities here um, to really kind of make these cattle a crop and maybe solve some problems that we're seeing in the, the cash grain side of things here, and especially in the state of Iowa. I also think we have a really good opportunity here to drop some of these winter feed costs for some producers that are willing to implement some of these things. now. Obviously, there's a trade-off. Every operation has operational constraints. We do drop a lot of labor out of an operation when we implement this. I can tell you as a manager, the amount of time that we spend managing these swath cows all year long and all through the winter doesn't even come close to the amount of time and money that we spend just betting the cows in the dry lot control group. So it's a very drastic difference. And some of the producers that I work with that are starting to move towards some systems like this, uh, one of the comments that they say is, I didn't even know I had this much time in the winter. So it's a huge labor savings and it's something that we're going to keep looking at. How do we guarantee a little bit higher quality forage in a drought year like we came out of this year? Um, that's something that we need to work on. And I think our friends in the seed breeding industry can definitely help us out there because we've just kind of been running uh, with whatever we could get for sorghum sedan and pearl millets. And I think there's some improved varieties out there that can really help us uh, solve that problem and lead to those cows holding better condition all year. Uh, Garland, David, anything else on this topic you'd like to highlight today or things that you think would be of value to producers who are evaluating, thinking about this as an option? What I'll say on it, Aaron, is it's something I'm very passionate about because I feel that it it can really help in some operations really to the bottom line. What I would encourage producers to do is if you're going to look at implementing something like this, it is not a silver bullet to be an end-all be-all. It really complements a well-managed uh, grazing operation. And I would encourage producers to start small and just think, can we knock 30 to 40 days of feeding costs out that first year with more extended grazing, whether it be a swath grazing practice or something like that, Start small because as we've touched on in this and Garland will probably end on it as well, there's a lot of management that we're learning as we go on this. We're seeding these crops in ultra challenging times for our area. You all out West may kind of snicker at that a little bit. Our challenging seeding times is kind of your regular, but there's a lot that we're learning with this. So start small if you're wanting to do it and then kind of grow into it. Because once you start getting that little bit of time in the winter to think and lay out how you're going to do the whole next year, it works a lot better. If you've got a plan going into it, 
and you're not constantly in crisis management mode, scrambling to get this stuff together. We've got crops that are following each other within the same growing year. So we really need to have a very thought out plan before we go into this would be my advice to producers. Yeah, that's David's right. It, it's um, it's something you, it's very manageable. It's just, you do got to give it a little thought early on how, because, you know, if you have a wood, you know, wooded area, you know, you're going to have snow drift up against there. So graze that off first before it gets buried with snow too deep. I guess the other thing is, you know, there's there's some people will say, well, what about water? What about bad, bad weather? It's it's really not as bad and severe as you think it is. You know, the, as far as fencing, David mentioned one hot wire it does hold them in. They don't really challenge it at all. The snow thing, we've 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 grazed through a uh, forage that had an inch of ice, and then us put a snow on top of it. And they clean that up just as good as anything else. The Canadians say you can graze through two feet without any trouble. So that that covers most of our snow events here. You know, we get a blowout here and there of you know snowstorm, but it we haven't had one yet that the cows didn't want to graze. We've had 20 below weather. We've grazed through 20 below weather for a whole week of 20 below, and that didn't seem to phase the cows one bit. The water thing, some people, well, what about water? And so this last year, we started to pay attention that we've had meters out there and what the cows were drinking. Whenever it rains, whenever it snows, they don't drink anything, literally. They just, they, there's enough moisture in the feed itself that they're just not looking for anymore. On average, this past winter, we've averaged three gallons per head per day is what our average water consumption was per cow. So a lot of days it was zero because we had fresh snow or rain. When we had some open times or when the snow got kind of icy and they didn't want to eat it anymore or it fell off the windrows, I say then I say we they've gained a little bit of water consumption then, but it's really not a big, not as big a deal as you might think it is. And I say if you look at Canadian data, they'll say the cows don't need any water, and um, so I don't know. It doesn't seem like it's as big a problem. You know, we have a lot more open winters than what they would have, but um, the cows aren't afraid to walk back for water, and they don't have nothing else to do. The swaths are there to eat, and they can walk back for a drink. So. If they walk half a mile, a mile, it doesn't seem to make too big a deal for them to get a drink. I heard the McNay research herd that's outside of campus, those cows walk quite a ways to get their water, and they actually held up very well. Not been a big problem. Well, David Garland, I really appreciate your time today. This has been a really interesting conversation. I, I appreciate your research. I appreciate your systems approach, and I think folks are going to find this to be very interesting. So looking forward to seeing what you do going forward, what you learn, and perhaps sometime a year or two down the road, we can have a follow-up conversation. Sure. Sounds good. Not a problem, Aaron. We're going to keep at it. But for more information on the topic that was discussed in today's Beef Watch podcast, I would encourage you to visit the Iowa State University, their annual industry report. Again, this is the 2021 edition. The title of the article we discussed today, Swath Grazing Ford Sorghum and Pearl Millet, Observations Regarding Quality and Utilization as a Winter Feed.